delighted that you're here. We have a good number present in spite of the fact we have a number who are out sick. And we're delighted that you're here. And for those who are visiting with us, we're glad that you've come. Hope you can come back again. Tonight we'll continue our study of Isaiah as we're working through in a very quick pace of the major prophets. We'll be looking at 16 chapters of Isaiah, and that is Isaiah chapters 24 to 39, if you want to care to read through those. Uh, that's a lot of material, but we're going to hit the high points and summarize by sections, etc. So come back and be a part of that study this evening. Well, Lord's Day mornings, we've been working through some studies called Building Up the Church, and today we want to bring that to a close. This doesn't mean that we will have covered everything that's involved in building up the church, because anything that we talk about of being what we should be, doing what God would have us to do, has to do with building up the church. So we'll continue the thought, but in other kinds of studies. We begin this by just simply talking about what it means to build up the church, and then we talk about a number of ways we can do that. We can build the church up through individual involvement. We can build the church up by edifying one another. We can build the church up through meaningful worship. We can build the church up through strong relationships to God, to the world, and to the church. And we can build the church up through God-fearing homes. And then last week we talked about building the church up through quality Bible classes. A local church is not strong at all if it drifts. It's a sign of weakness. Hebrews chapter 2 and in verse 1, and you may want to turn there, may even put a marker there, we'll come several times to Hebrews chapter 2 and in verse 1, that we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest at any time we should drift away. And what I'm learning from that is the Bible warns of the possibility of drifting. And when a church drifts, then it's no longer a strong church. And because of that danger, and in view of that danger, we must be watchful. Let's go to Acts, the 20th chapter, where Paul talked to the elders of the church at Ephesus. And he warned them that after his departure, some things may happen, so that disciples are drawn away, and consequently there's going to be some problems within the church. And then here is what he says, verse 31, Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn every one of you night and day with tears. And so in view of the danger, of possibility of drifting, we must be watchful. So let's conclude our series by talking about building up the church by watching for drifting. One of the things that every one of us can do, not only as elders, but as a congregation as a whole, you as a member, can watch for drifting because, let's just suppose for illustration, that we as the elders are leading the church the wrong direction, you have a responsibility as a Christian to watch for that drifting and secure yourself spiritually so that you're not a part of that drifting. You may have to identify with a group that is not drifting, or whatever the case may be. So this is much as much for everyone as it is for those who may be leaders in the church that we need to watch for drifting, building up the church by watching for drifting. Several things we want to talk about. Let's begin with this. That if we're watching for drifting, we are going to be aware that drifting is possible. If we're clueless to the fact that drifting is possible, we'll not ever notice when drifting takes place. So we need to begin by being aware drifting is possible. Let's go to Hebrews 2 and in verse 1 where we started. 
We can drift as individuals or as a church. We ought to give the earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest at any time we should drift away. So that could happen to me as an individual, that I could begin to drift away. The church here stayed solid. It remains where it ought to be. But I could be drifting to the right or to the left. I could be veering off on a bypass somewhere. Or it could be the church as a whole is drifting. Where once we stood solid here, it could be that over a period of time we have drifted and we no longer stand where we used to stand. We no longer teach what we used to teach. We no longer practice what we used to practice. So we can drift as an individual or we can drift as a church. That suggests that it is possible to make a change. That we can do again that as individuals or we can do that as a church. Let me just give you some examples of that. That happened to the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus changed. The text says they left their first love. Here is something they had, something they were, something they stood for, and it's no longer like it used to be. And Paul said, or John says, that they, or the Lord through John says, they should repent and redo their first works. That is, go back and do what you used to do. You change somehow. They left their first love. Hymenaeus and Philetus did. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. These were not just some external folks in the sense that they were not a part of the church and they were becoming a threat to those who were the people of God, but these had been among the people of God. Look at 2 Timothy 2 beginning at verse 17. And their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who having strayed concerning the truth. How far did they go? They said the resurrection has already passed and they've overthrown the faith of some. So here were some whose faith was strong at one point, and they have veered from the faith, and now they're teaching a doctrine that's overthrowing the faith of others. They changed. That could happen to me, and that could happen to you. Demas did. Demas hath forsaken me, having loved the present world. Some change took place with Demas. That could happen to me, and it could happen to you. Now let's talk about the effect that it could have. It can affect, let's go to Acts chapter 20 to notice most of these. We'll not notice all of these points, but several of these points are made in Acts chapter 20. This is where Paul calls the elders of the church at Ephesus to meet him at Miletus, and he warns them, I'm going away, you may never see my face again, and you need to be aware of the possibility of drifting. That's what he's saying to them. Here is the impact or the effect that it can have. It can affect what we believe if we drift. Look at verse 30. From among your own selves will men arise speaking perverse things and draw away disciples after themselves. If what men are speaking is perverse and they create disciples, that means people now believe perverse things. So our drifting doesn't mean we just maybe not attend like we used to, but now it affects even what we believe. We don't believe what the truth is anymore. Here's another effect that it can have. It can affect how we live. Now, hold your finger at Acts 20. We're coming back to that. It can affect how we live. Evil communications corrupts good manners or good morals. And I might, hopefully don't need to remind you that 1 Corinthians 15, 33 is talking in the context of false teachers. That if you associate with false teachers, they can corrupt your morality. You change the way you live because of what they say. Here's another effect it can have. It can affect the strength of a local church. Look at verse 29 of Acts 20. I said we'd come back. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. 
And so here are false teachers who come in and they're like savage wolves <clears throat> who are destructive and they do damage to the flock. And so it affects the strength of the local church. And ultimately, it can affect the destiny of our souls. If they're speaking perverse things, draw away disciples after themselves. Verse 30, not sparing the flock. That suggests their soul is in danger. So here we need to begin with this, and that is be aware the drifting is altogether possible. I can do that as an individual. It can happen as a church. We can make changes. It can affect our faith, how we live, the strength of the church, and even the salvation of our souls. Drifting is very dangerous. Here's something else we need to do. If we're going to be watchful for drifting, we need to understand that drifting is casual, uh, is gradual. We need to understand, not only be aware that it's possible to drift, but that drifting usually takes place in a gradual fashion. Apostasy generally doesn't come overnight. It's not that someone or a church is faithful and strong one day and then suddenly there's a change. What happens is, what seems to be su sudden has been developing for a while. That's true as an individual. That's true as a congregation. For example, let's think of an individual for a moment that you thought they were faithful and every indication was that they were faithful and then suddenly they quit serving the Lord. And you say, I don't understand. All of a sudden they just quit serving the Lord. It didn't happen all of a sudden. This has been building for a while. You may not have seen it. I may not have seen it. They might not have fully understood it themselves, but gradually their faith has been getting weaker. They've been drifting for a while, and now they may have gone over the, the waterfalls, but they've been drifting for a long, long time. And here's a church that you had confidence in, and you said they always stood strong, they always taught the truth, they always stood behind what was right, and now look at who they're embracing and the doctrine they're teaching. How, why all of a sudden did that happen? It didn't happen all of a sudden been building for a while. It's been happening for some time. It can happen as a church. It can happen as an individual. Now let's consider the departure is a slow and a gradual process. I said put your finger or marker at Hebrews 2. Let's go back again to Hebrews 2 and in verse 1. Hebrews 2 and verse 1 says we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard. Let's stop there just for a moment. Go back and take the things that you've learned, that you've heard, and you've been assured they are the truth. Give heed to those. Hold on fast to those. Why? Lest we drift away. That's the New King James. Drifting suggests something slow and gradual. Those of you who are fishermen know that if you get out on a river and you don't put an anchor down, that you may slip, uh, drift a little bit. And then you may drift a little more. And then you may drift a little more. And it may be slow and gradual, but finally you're going to be a long distance from where you thought you were. The King James words it thus, lest at any time we should let them slip. Slipping describes a slow and a gradual process. Not a jump, but a slip. The footnote in the, New King, or the King James. If you have that, you might make note of this. And if you don't, then you might make a marginal note. And that is the footnote in the King James says, run out as leaking vessels. If you have a leaking vessel, that describes a slow and a gradual process. The faucet you see before you, 
is not turned on full blast so that you are seeing just gallons and gallons go down the drain and you would go fix that or cut the water off or call the plumber. You do something because you're losing so much so fast. Those swift movements make you take notice. But what you don't realize is that drop here, drop there, and a drop there doesn't seem greatly significant, but over a period of time, that adds up to gallons and gallons and gallons. What Hebrews 2 and verse 1 is describing is a slow, gradual process. Now here perhaps is one of the better illustrations that I've been able to use to describe the slow, gradual process. And I understand the Bible doesn't teach this, what I'm about to mention, but let's just for, for illustration's sake assume something for a moment. And let's just assume that in order to worship God, we are supposed to have a black square in front of the assembly every time we worship God. You say, in the Bible, I know that. But let's just illustrate that for a moment. What I'm going to describe to you is how slow and gradual apostasy and departure and drifting comes. So let's just assume that we've always had that as long as we can remember a black square in the front of the assembly, wherever we are, if it's under a tree, if it's in a building, wherever it is, we've always had a black square. We've always had deacons that saw to the fact that we had a black square, it was painted, it was done, it was fixed right, and we always have a black square. But we have a new convert that we have baptized, and we tell this new convert, we're going to put you in charge of the black square. He doesn't understand the significance of it, and over a period of five years, he lets the sun become, or lets the square become exposed till it begins to fade, and now we have a dark gray. Now, if we came in one Sunday and we had a black square, and the next Sunday it's dark gray, we might have some trouble in the church. But remember, it took five years to get to this point. It's just gradually gotten lighter and lighter, and hardly anybody's paying attention. And you think, well, back last year, I remember, I've got pictures from last year, and it looks very similar to the one last year. It doesn't seem like it's made a big change. In five more years, it begins to look like this. Now, I see a difference in ten, ten years from the first year we started, but that took ten years to get to that point. That man we put in charge has been the deacon for ten years. Ten more years, it looks like this, and then twenty, and then twenty-five. You see, that person that was born back here, the last time it was black, is now twenty-five years old and is married now. And you ask him, or her, as the case may be, do you remember? I don't even remember the black square. I don't remember that. I've always remembered this kind of grayish color. That's all they ever remember. But remember now, it took 25 years to get to this point. And then 30, and then 35, and then 40. I see a big difference in the 40th year and the year we started. But that person who was born back here is now 40 years old. Their children are married now. And not only do they not remember, their children not remember, they don't remember the black square. Because we gradually begin to lighten things until by the year 55 years, this person is a granddaddy now that was born back over here. And neither him nor his children nor his grandchildren know anything about black squares. It only took 55 years to go from a black square to a white square. That's a big change. But we're not through. You see, now we've appointed a new deacon to see to this, and we keep telling him, take care of that square, and all he knows is about a white square. And in the process of cleaning and rubbing it, they begin to rub the corners off just a little bit. 
But really, that looks more like a square than it does, I suppose, a circle, doesn't it? Remember, it took five years to get to those rounded corners just a little bit. After all, that may look a little more modern, mightn't it? And then five more years, and then five more years, and five more years, and you see where we're headed. And by the year 85, down the line, this man is now in a nursing home that was born back the last time it was a black square. And if you ask him about that, he has a foggy memory. He may not even remember now about that black square. His children know nothing about it, and his grandchildren nor his great-grandchildren know anything about that. There's not much difference from year 85 to 90 and 95 to 90, but you see the gradual change, and by the year 110, now we have a white circle, and it only took 110 years to go from a black square to a white circle. That's how apostasy takes place. Now, if you had an assembly where you had the black square one Sunday and somebody put a white square the next Sunday, forget the circle, just the white square, the church would split wide open. But peacefully, they brought it in by taking a hundred years or so. They finally brought in a white circle, and that's what's before the, the congregation now. That's how apostasy develops. Go back to Hebrews 2 and in verse 1. I said we keep coming to that again. What we've just described before you know, white squares and squares and circles and black and white is just an illustration of this principle, lest at any time we should let them drift. Or lest at any time we should let them slip or run out as leaking vessels. Departure takes place like this. Here are the old principles we've always stood for. The things that are revealed in the Scriptures, the old Bible principles. But because of departure, drifting makes the liberal thinking and practice a little more attractive. At first we reject that. We don't like that. We may even oppose that. Remember Campbell, Alexander Campbell, opposed a lot of things that he later endorsed. Because over here he was still holding for the old principles. But as time goes on, here's how the transition takes place. There is a period of toleration of both. You can tolerate the old principles, but you can tolerate the more liberal way of thinking. You can tolerate preaching against something, but you can also tolerate the practice of the thing that was preached against. But you can tolerate both. We're in a transition period for a while. That happened in instrumental music controversy. That happened in the missionary society controversy. That happened in the 1930s and 1940s and 50s and on down the line. And by and by, what happens is, there is a greater shift to more liberal thinking and practice and less toleration for the old. Less toleration, but that's important. While we may tolerate the preaching against this practice and sin now, it may be that as we have a greater toleration for the more liberal thinking, that we have less toleration for that which is the old. And finally, we do away with that. And that's how you go from a black square to a white circle within a short period of time. You may not recognize the name David Edwin Harrell Jr. He's a member of the church, member of a non-institutional church. But if that name were mentioned in universities across the country, the history department in any university would recognize Dr. Harrell as a renowned historian. In court, when he's been asked, are you an expert on the church of Christ? He says, yes, I am. (laughs) I sure am. I'm an expert. 
Not to be arrogant, but to state his credentials. Here's what he says about the emerging of the Church of Christ denomination. He said, countless groups which had their origin as conservative and exclusive churches have evolved in the course of a few generations into liberal and tolerant denominations. Didn't take very long to go from a black square to a white circle. How did that take place? Well, he makes this argument. Some disagree with him, but it makes an interesting point. The successful grandchildren and great-grandchildren who have far exceeded the, their forebears financially, educationally, and socially, mind you, Deuteronomy 6, are not likely to want the same kind of worship, the same kind of preachers, or the same kind of gospels their ancestors loved. Do you see the transition? They started out as solid people. And over a few generations, now they're very liberal and tolerant. Nothing more than a denomination. How'd that happen? Well, when we reach a point, we have it better than our ancestors ever had it. We're socially better. We're educationally better. We're financially better. We don't want what Grandpa had. It's old fogey. It's out of date. This is important. It takes at least one generation. This is historian speaking. It takes at least one generation to make the change and at least one more generation to understand and admit the change. You see, during the transition period, we, we say, we haven't changed. We're not changing. Nobody's changing. The first generation makes the change. The next generation says, yes, we've made a change. So what? Who cares? We need to be aware of the possibility of drifting. Understand that drifting is gradual. We need to be watchful. If we're going to watch for drifting for the spirit of error. Let's go to 1 John 4 and verse 1. It talks about a spirit of error. Try the spirits, verse 1 said, whether they be of God. Then he talks about testing it by what the apostles said. That's your standard. And hereby we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Interesting phrase. We'll come back to that. Hold your finger there at 1 John. 2 Thessalonians 2 talks about a spirit of lawlessness in the great apostasy that warned about. Hadn't yet come at the time Paul was writing, but he warned of the spirit of lawlessness. And so here he pictures a spirit of error, an attitude of error, an attitude of lawlessness that finally then inhabits, in 1 John 4's case, in that case, inhabits a body, and the body that spirit inhabited was the, the concept that Jesus did not come in the flesh, verses 2 and 3. That's in the context of verse 1 and 6. Sandwich right in the middle of that. Here was the era that it took on. So it's like a spirit that inhabits a body. Once you get that concept, here is a spirit that finally takes on a body, and the body it took on was this form of error that says Jesus had not come in the flesh. Well, here's the, the principle. The spirit of error is like germs. We're very cognizant of that at this period in, in, in the year. And what germs are doing are germs are floating around. And what the germ is doing, or those germs are doing, are looking for a body to inhabit. And when those germs inhabit the body, it makes the body sick. But until that takes place, these germs are looking and they are bodiless in the sense they haven't inhabited the body yet. All right, now let's take that concept. Let's talk about seducing spirits in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. There would be seducing spirits. Well, that inhabited the body in the sense that those seducing spirits, that attitude, 
took on the form of forbidding to marry and abstaining from meats. Now, seducing spirits could have taken different forms, but that's the body it took because that was the era that was prevalent at the time. Well, let's learn this again. Let's, let's talk about this principle of how until a body is found, the spirit remains bodiless. So let's talk about a bodiless spirit. And this bodiless spirit of error is looking for a body that it can take or a form that it can take. We're going to talk about some of those in just a moment. It's looking for a body, how it can, just like the germs are looking for a body that it might inhabit. We might illustrate that with a child who has a mischievous spirit. You walk into someone's house and you see this little girl and you say, she has a mischievous spirit. Now if you're taking care of the child that night, why don't you go ahead and spank her? Well, she hadn't done anything wrong yet. She hadn't done anything wrong. She's just playing at a mischievous spirit. You see mischief in her eyes, don't you? All right, not only that, she hasn't done anything wrong yet. But you see mischief in her eyes. She has that look that says, I'm going to get into something. Well, why don't you go ahead and spank her now? Why don't you put her in the corner and punish her? Because she hadn't done anything wrong yet. But you see an attitude that's going to display itself. Maybe she has a daring spirit of rebellion, seems like. But it's not until that daring spirit takes on the form of activity, of throwing a tantrum, pitching a fit, or throwing her toys, or whatever it is that she does, refuses to obey, that spirit has now taken on a form of activity or a body. Alright? Let's look at the past. In the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 19, Samuel made the point that as they are appointing now a king, he said, you have had a spirit of rebellion. You have been rebellious people. You have rejected God. Now that was the spirit of rebellion, but here's the form it took. It took the form of asking for a king in chapter 8 and verse 5. Give us a king like the other nations around us, they said. So here is an attitude that took on this form. We're building to a point. Uzziah had a heart that was lifted up, 2 Chronicles 26, 16. So he lifts up his heart, that is, he lifts himself up with pride, but that led to, here's the body that that spirit inhabited, he entered the temple and burned incense that he was not authorized to do. It's not for him, the text says. Let's go back again in history. Let's come a little closer to our time. In the 1800s, we've already talked about the spirit of lawlessness and a loss of respect for authority. Historians tell us that during the 19, or 1830s or 1840s, early 1850s, there was a growing lack of respect for authority. So here is that spirit of lawlessness, lack, loss of respect. That inhabited the body of these issues. Missionary society, instrumental music, and that's when the church split in the 1800s. Let's come on down in time, in 1930s. There was a spirit of speculation, of speculating on the future. You say, well, what did that lead to? Well, that was an attitude that led to this doctrine of premillennialism in the 1930s. That's not in denominationalism, that's in churches of Christ. Let's come on down to the 40s and the 50s. Again, there was this loss of respect by the 30s and the 40s that finally led to, and it inhabited the body, putting the college in the budget, church-sponsored organizations, the sponsoring church arrangement. What we're seeing is a spirit of error found its body. Now, when we're talking about a spirit of error, we're talking about an attitude that we might label as a bodiless spirit of error that's like germs that's floating around looking for a body to inhabit. And the question is, when we begin to see a spirit of error, an attitude that hasn't become full-fledged yet, 
what form is it going to take? What body is it going to land in? Let's begin to list some things that we need to watch for. Being watchful for drifting, we need to be watchful for the spirit of error. For example, we might begin to notice some people losing respect for the Word, for the inspired Word of God, that it is the revealed will of God, that it is the inspired Word of God. I'm not talking about in denominationalism. I'm talking about among our own brethren. When, when you hear comments being made that reflect the fact that we don't really respect it as the inspired will of God, that it was God-breathed, that every word was given by the breath of God. And somebody says, well, why don't you withdraw right at that point? They're like the mischievous child. You can't punish them because they're showing a, a, some spirit here. It hasn't taken on its body yet. They just might be raising questions about the inspiration of the Scriptures. Now, that's a bodiless spirit that'll take a form at some point. You mark my word, it'll take a form at one point, and it'll, it'll have to do with rejection of some Bible principle, but maybe it hasn't taken form yet. Or maybe here is a lack of respect for authority, for leadership. Maybe it's in the home. Maybe you see in the home where the children don't respect the parents' leadership. Or you see a wife who doesn't respect her husband's leadership. Maybe she's the one that's the leader in the home. Maybe there's little respect for government leaders, where we have no respect for those who are in authority, the king and those who are in authority like the Bible describes. So we show all disrespect for those in authority. And maybe we show disrespect toward leadership in the church. So here is an attitude and a spirit that maybe hasn't taken a form yet. But little comments suggest they don't really respect leadership of elders, don't respect the leadership of the government, don't respect the husband's leadership or the parental leadership. That'll take form at some point. That's a bodiless spirit of error that's floating around looking for a body to inhabit. Or maybe there's a desire to be different. And we think those in the past are wrong. When we start hearing people talk about, you know, the, the, those who went before us in the past, they were all wrong. They missed it. See that with reference to government leadership? We see that with reference to the church. People were all wrong in how they fought their battles in the 40s and the 50s and 1800s. We're wrong about that. Should have been different. And our leaders of the past were all wrong, and so we've got to do things different. And there's a desire to be different from everybody else. And you say, well, why don't you just hammer down and deal with those people who have a desire to be different? That's the mischievous spirit in the child. I'm not going to spank the child when they have that look in their eye, are you? Better keep your eye on it, though, because she's going to do something. And when people have this attitude of desire to be different, mark my word, that's a bodiless spirit that'll finally inhabit a body and it'll take a form and then we'll say, that's what that was about. That's what that was about. Or maybe we're impressed with the wisdom of the world. Do you remember 1 Corinthians chapter 1? That ought to be familiar to us. In 1 Corinthians 1, when Paul was preaching the gospel, he said that the Greeks thought it was foolishness to preach Christ. And they thought it was wisdom to reject the Messiah. And they viewed the gospel as nothing but another philosophy and begin to compare philosophies. And maybe, maybe we could follow Paul or Paulus or Cephas or maybe one of these other philosophers over here we could follow. And so here's the idea that sometimes we're impressed with the wisdom of the world. And when we're overly impressed with the wisdom of the world and very little impression of the wisdom of God, you say, why don't you just, just, just withdraw from people when they're... You're going to spank the child when she's got that look in her eye like, I'm going to get into it? No. Better keep an eye on it. Because this attitude right here, 
this attitude right here will finally find the body to inhabit. It's going to finally do it. It's going to come, and it will take on a form. If we're going to be watchful for drifting, we need to note the dangers that some have faced. If you see a sign on the road that says danger, road out ahead. You can ignore it. But if you reflect back that in the paper, maybe the week before, two weeks before, a month before, somebody ignored that and they ran off a bridge down there that was torn out and they had a wreck and they died. Well, just thinking back about dangers that others have faced makes me aware that I could face the same danger. Like what? Well, here's what some brethren have faced, not just among us, but I mean around the world. Sometimes brethren become tolerant of worldliness. By worldliness, we're talking about social drinking, immodesty, dancing, gambling, fornication, just to begin to list a few. Now, how is it that brethren become tolerant of that? We become tolerant in that maybe we participate in those, or maybe we say nothing against it. We don't, I don't believe it's right, but I'm not going to say anything against gambling, but I know others who are gambling, maybe. Or maybe we comfort those who participate in that. I don't see anything wrong with what you, I wouldn't do it, but there's nothing wrong for you to do that. John chapter 2 tells us that it must be addressed because we're not to love the world or the things in the world for all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life are not of the Father, but of the world. We must address worldliness. We must address all forms of sin. Here's another danger some have faced wherein there's been drifting, becoming tolerant of error and broader fellowship. Now let's notice Romans chapter 16. Error must be marked. When error is taught, error must be addressed and error must be marked. Let us Romans chapter 16. Mark those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine that you have learned and avoid them. So suppose someone teaches the doctrine of premillennialism and they rise up within a local church teaching that doctrine that, that Christ is coming back and establishing an earthly kingdom. How should that be addressed? They should be marked and identified because they're advocating the doctrine of premillennialism. Or whatever the case may be. Maybe it's a denial of the deity of Christ. Some brethren have done that in the past. Error must be marked. Now, there have been a number of effort, efforts to be more tolerant of error. And I'm going to quickly just list three. Each one of these could be a lesson within themselves. Some have tried to narrow the scope of a false teacher. That is, let's not like make the term false teacher a broad term that encompasses everybody that teaches something false. Let's narrow that focus down of a false teacher to one who has a bad attitude. So, yes, what he's teaching is not true, but we can tolerate that because a false teacher is really one who has a bad attitude. 1 John 4 shows he's a false teacher if his teaching doesn't agree with the apostles, verse 6. Another effort has been to broaden the scope of Romans 14. To say that Romans chapter 14 deals with matters of doctrine and faith, but it has to do with scruples or opinions, verse 1, having to do with Christian liberty, and another is, and this is a little more closer to home, suggesting the revelation of God lacks clarity. It's really hard to be clear what, what the Bible is teaching here in this passage, like on divorce and remarriage. Maybe it's on, on uh, some other subject. It may not be divorce and remarriage. It may be on gambling. It may be on social drinking. Or it may be on creation itself. The Bible lacks clarity, and since it's unclear and we can't figure it out, then we can be very tolerant of a broader system of fellowship. Here's another area where there's been drifting, blurring the lines of distinction. We sometimes blur the lines between the individual and the church. 1 Timothy 5.16 shows a clear distinction. 
Here's the responsibility of the individual that's not the church. Let not the church be charged. But how do we blur the lines? Where we talk about things that are directed to the individual and apply to the church, or talk about things individuals are doing and say the church is doing it, though we know the difference. And when we raise a generation blurring those lines of distinction, the next generation won't know there's a difference in the individual and the church and the work of the individual and the church. More about that in a moment. Here's another blurring of the lines, where we blur the lines between social and spiritual. And I cite John 6, 63. Jesus said, my words, they are spirit and they are life. My message is spiritual in its nature. It's not social, not feeding the hungry. It's a spiritual message. And I cite 1 Corinthians 11 in that. 1 Corinthians 11 is where they were abusing the Lord's Supper, making a common meal out of that. What, do you not have houses to eat and to drink in? So when there is the blurring between the spiritual and the social, here is some social function, and we treat it like it's a spiritual thing, and we take a spiritual and treat it like it's a social thing, the next generation won't know the difference in social and spiritual. And therein, we're right for apostasy. Another danger that some has faced is not knowing what's missing, what's not being taught. You see, just because error is not being taught doesn't mean that the teaching is what it should be. Acts 20, Paul said, I preached to you the whole counsel of God. I preached everything that needed to be preached. And so the question is, what's not being taught? So you identify with the local church and you say, what I heard was true. Everything they said was true. But over a period of time, the question needs to be, what was missing from that? Did they ever address some of the sin in the congregation? Was, was this subject ever dealt with? When they have people who are divorced and remarried, do they deal with divorce and remarriage? When they have people going to the dance, do they deal with the prom? When they, when they have people social drinking, do they deal with social drinking? And on down the line, do they deal with those things? Therein is an area of drifting. And furthermore, may I suggest to you that another area of drifting for some is a diminishing respect for the Word of God. The Word of God ought to be viewed as being God-breathed. And that is, here is something that was given by the very breath of God. All Scripture is given by the breath of God, the inspiration of God. 1 Corinthians 2.13 argues that every word is inspired, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. That is, the Holy Spirit chose the very words that were uttered. That's verbal inspiration. Every word was inspired. How do we view a diminishing respect for the word? Sometimes the word of God is not viewed, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2 and 13, as the Word of God itself. Sometimes someone will talk about how the Word of God is subject to error. The writers wrote of their own accord. And so Paul was writing of his own accord over here in 1 Corinthians 14. And so when he talks in 1 Corinthians 14 about the role of women, that maybe he overstated the case. He, probably, he was maybe exaggerating the case a little bit. See, he was writing of his own accord. That's a denial of verbal inspiration right here. And so here's where some have already drifted among us. What I've listed here has happened among churches of Christ, non-institutional churches of Christ. And we need to note the dangers that some have faced. Now here's the final thing, and the lesson will be yours. If we're going to watch for drifting, we need to have the wisdom to see where things can lead. We need to have the wisdom to see where things can lead. You see, history shows that something innocent within itself or questionable can lead to departure. 
And someone would be sure to say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Tell me what's wrong with what's, what this practice right here. And it may not be that that's wrong within itself, but it may be questionable that it can lead to something greater. You say, well, can you warn against it? Well, let's see. Let's go back in history for a moment. And I want to list four stages of apostasy for you. And we're going to display it with history. The first is a change in attitude. Let's just suppose now that I wanted to introduce church choirs. How could I do that? Well, it probably wouldn't work to go to an elders meeting and say, you know what, I've been thinking about church choir and I've got some picked out. We're going to have one next Sunday. Next Sunday, you'd have a new preacher and you'd have one less elder. I guarantee it. If I were to able to introduce that, the church would split. So that's not going to work. Got to go in a different direction. What we'd have to do is change attitude for a while. So it's not going to come overnight. We change attitude. And the change in attitude is letting up on an emphasis of thus saith the Lord and an emphasis on scripture and an emphasis on authority. You preach on things that people need, for example, moral living. You preach on various principles, but you back away and shy away for a number of years. And so 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line, we might have a stage ready to introduce stage two. Because we have let up and we have had a change in attitude. Now stage two is, you talk about new ideas long before they're suggested. So we're going to wait a while, and maybe 10, 20 years down the line, we might raise questions like, in private, I wouldn't do this in Bible class, because somebody might rebuke me, but you'd say, do you really see anything wrong with church choirs? And when somebody jumps to, oh, no, 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 I'm not suggesting we do that. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I, I, I agree with you that we shouldn't do it. But, but how would you prove it to be wrong? See, I'm raising questions. I'm planting seeds of doubt. Are you advocating? No, I'm not advocating. I'm not advocating. I wouldn't advocate it at all. What I'm asking is, has our arguments against church choirs been solid? That's what I'm asking, see. And I'm planting seeds of doubt. I'm going to do that for a number of years. Now we're ready for stage three. We're going to slowly introduce a questionable practice. Not in the assembly. We're going to have it in my home. And while we have a singing in my home, I might say, well, you know, before we quit, I'd like to hear you to hear this, these four guys have a quartet and listen to them do Amazing Grace. Just, now, this is not worship. This is not in church. I just want you to hear that. You say, well, I don't agree with that. Well, okay, that's where it becomes... And now we get accustomed to that. Now we're ready for stage four, full innovation, because you didn't see anything wrong with it in the home, and you bought it there. Now I'm ready to introduce it into the church. And now I may change my argument. False teachers can be dishonest. I'll say, there is no difference in worship and practice. Now before I argued differently, but I'm going to change my argument. Dishonest people do that. And now we have full innovation. I want to suggest that's exactly what happened in introducing instrumental music in the 1800s, those same four stages. Now, long before they introduced the instrument, listen to this carefully. Long before the instrument was introduced, historians tell us there was a letting up on an emphasis of Bible authority. There already was this stage of a lack of respect for authority. And because that was going on, there were already men like L.L. L. Pinkerton and a host of others who were saying, is there anything wrong with instrumental music like the denominations have? 
And when asked, they would say, oh, no, I'm not suggesting we do that. No, 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 no. You misunderstood. I'm not advocating that. I'm just asking questions about that. That's what they said. Now we're ready for stage three. They slowly introduce a questionable practice. The singing was so bad at midway that it would scare even the rats away, they said. So it was first suggested, this is from uh, uh, Earl West, Search for the Ancient Order. It was first suggested that a meeting be held on Saturday night to practice the song. And let's stop there. Anything wrong with practicing? Well, no. You might argue we're never practicing. I would argue that. We never practice. We're always worshiping God, but it's just practice. So let's do that on Saturday night. Shortly afterwards, someone brought in a melodeon. That's a small portable piano to be used in getting the right pitch. Questionable practice. Questionable practice. Is there anything wrong with using melodeon to get the pitch? What if we were in my home and there's a piano over here and I say, here's middle C, now let's get the pitch and let's go. No one would oppose that, would they? No, there's not anything really wrong with that. But can you see where that might lead? Well, you can't oppose things because of where they lead. Somebody should have. Somebody should have right there. You say, why? Well, let's see. Before long, one of the sisters was accompanying the singing with her playing on the melodeon. This is just practice. It's not in worship. Anything wrong with that? I have a problem. But we're just practicing trying to get our singing better, you see. Started out to get the pitch. Now they're accompanying the music. The, observe, the group observed that the effect of the use of the melodeon was good on the singing. And so stage four, it was decided to try to use in the Lord's Day worship. That's how it happened. Four stages. Someone didn't have the wisdom to see where things would lead. Wisdom looks to the future. James 1. If any lack wisdom, let him ask of God. You say, that doesn't have anything to do with apostasy. No, it doesn't. Let me tell you what it does have to do with. It has to do with persecution. And the context says there is value and good that's going to come down the line, down the future, from that persecution. So wisdom means, if you ask God for wisdom, I want to be able to see that what looks like bad now, that there's some good coming from that I can see down the future and see where, where this leads. The prudent man foresees evil and hides himself. He looks to the future. And he sees the danger thereof. We won't take the time to develop First Kings. Let me give you some examples. Things that, like using the melodeon to get the pitch, you may have had a fit about that. I may have had a fit about that. But all we could do, all we could do was warn where this may lead. And their brethren, mark my word, who always say you can't oppose something on the basis of where it will lead. Who says you can't? That's what I want to know. Who says you can't? Why can't you oppose on the basis of where the thing will lead? Because I know what happened in history. Isn't that what James 1 and Proverbs 22 and even 1 Kings 1 is talking about? Here's some examples. For example... Someone questions inspiration. Is the Bible really inspired? I'm not advocating it's not. I just want to know, if, do you really think it is? Well, is there a danger? Well, I may not can hammer at somebody because they question something, but I want to tell you where that will lead. That will lead to the rejection of any text they don't like. I want to say that again. When we question inspiration, that'll lead to the rejection of any text we don't like. You don't like the role of women? You're going to reject 1 Corinthians 14. You're going to reject 2 Timothy chapter 2, 11 and 12. 
You don't like baptism? You're going to reject Mark 16, 9 through 20. You don't like divorce and remarriage? You're going to say Matthew 19 is not in the original text. You're going to reject it. Here's another thing. Compromise on evolution. We begin to compromise with evolutionists. Maybe you're right about Genesis. Maybe you are right about that. But I don't believe evolution, though. I want to tell you, many who have compromised on evolution led to the acceptance of evolution. There was a man in the church a number of years ago who stirred a lot of controversy back in the year 2000, 2001, 2002, and 3, and 4, and 5, right in that five-year period. He didn't live that far from us. He was within an hour of us. He was a deacon in the church, in one of the churches in Huntsville at the time. His name is Hill Roberts. I don't mind at all identifying his name. This is going out public. I don't care for him knowing I identified his name. But he taught that the days of Genesis were not literal. I was in the audience once when there were 50 preachers in the audience, and he told us we did not have the tools to understand about creation and evolution because all we as preachers knew was the text. And y'all don't have the skills and the knowledge that I have as a scientist to understand things like I do. Arrogance gone to seed. At the time, he's questioning Genesis. He's now an elder in one of the churches in Huntsville and is a full-fledged, I'm told, evolutionist who buys the whole nine yards of evolution. Don't tell me you can't warn where things lead. He was warned back in 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003 of where this is going. And now that's where he is. When we start blurring the lines between the individual and the church, that could lead to the church-sponsored social activities. When we think everybody understands what we did a few years ago when we were hammering hard on institutionalism, that everybody understands the difference in the individual and the church, don't think for one moment the next generation has got that clear. When I say the next generation, I'm talking about people older than me and younger. 70 years old and younger, you have a, unless you've studied that, you don't have a clue what the institutionalism was about. Most people don't. Unless you studied history, you don't have a clue because you weren't there, you didn't live it. You were young, you were too young when this happened in the 1950s. If you're 70 years old, you're born in 1950. So when the real battle hit, you were about 10 years old, you probably weren't attuned to institutionalism. <laughs> probably not. And so if we're not attuned to that, and we are these lines between the individual and the church, and we don't make a clear distinction between the work of the individual and the church, you can mark it down. The next generation is going to have the church involved in social things out of the church treasury. That's exactly what happened before. Because we were not attuned to the dangers of drifting. Well, we've been talking about building up the church. And a number of ways we can do that. And it'll make the church strong when we are attuned to the dangers of drifting. When we're attuned to the dangers of drifting. Be aware that drifting is possible, understanding it's gradual. Watch for the spirit of error. Note the danger some face and have the wisdom to see where things can lead. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith in Christ, 
and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins. If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing? <clears throat> has been there oft before. Let him in, let him in, here he is gone. Let him in, the Holy One, Jesus Christ, the Father's Son. Let him in, open now to him your heart, let him in, if you will, he will depart, let him in. Thankful for the presence of each one this morning. We 